school, high school. Oh, that sound better. Good morning, everyone. I'd like to welcome everyone here this morning. Beautiful morning, not raining. Reminder to our young at heart of the activity scheduled this coming Tuesday, June the 15th. They will be going to uh, Frishies in Ironton, having a Devo here at 10 o'clock in the morning, and then going to uh, Frishies. So we're glad to start back another activity. That is this Tuesday morning. Want to remind uh, everyone of VBS coming up. That's July the 25th through the 29th. So that's not too far away. So start planning uh, your time there and inviting some of your friends. July the 25th through the 29th. On June the 20th. Our third Sunday evening, three our evening services, PM, we'll be doing our singing again. So that will be next Sunday, a week from today, Sunday evening singing. Fort Hill Camp, July the 4th through the 10th. That'll be here before you know it. Details is in the bulletin. Please check your bulletin for that. David also told me that the middle school and the high school will be going bowling this evening in the, at strike zone after services, middle school and high school. Those to remember on our prayer list, Carol Galloway, Carol scheduled uh, again to have kidney stent removed on Wednesday. Let's uh, continue to keep Carol in our prayers. And also remember Clinton, he has some tests coming up, and let's pray for Clinton and Carol. Continue to pray for Eloise Hayes. She had a fall, nothing broken, but uh, 
She's not getting along real well, so let's continue to pray for her. Dottie Hager, Yvonne Cornell, Jennifer Ward, always had recent uh, knee surgery. Continue to pray for them. And also John Klein uh, had knee surgery a few weeks ago, but he's still having some problems. And uh, they're going to be uh, checking some things on John's knee, so let's continue to pray for him. Martha Boso surgery went well. She's at home. Uh, also, Charlie, let's remember Charlie to keep him in our prayers. He has the surgery, that laser vein surgery. And also, Yvonne Cornell is home. She, uh, she got to go home, so uh, that's good news to hear that. Also, Eileen Stevens, Jerry's aunt and Hilda's sister-in-law, we need to uh, pray for her. Uh, they've asked prayers for her, pray for that family. Is there any other announcements? If not, let's bow and go to God in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this day. We're thankful, Father, that we're able to be here this morning to worship you. And, and Father, we pray that we will always worship you in spirit and worship you in truth, Father, the way that you would have us to do. We pray that you'll continue to bless us as uh, we open up more and we're able to do more. And we pray that, uh, that you'll watch over us and, and, and be, with the, be with the whole uh, country, Father, as uh, things are getting better. And, and uh, we thank you for being with us. And, Father, we pray for those who are hurting. We pray for those who were mentioned here this morning. And, and we're thankful for those who are recovering. But, Father, those who are still to face surgery, we pray that you'll be with us. Uh, Carol and, and be with her, Father, that she'll be able to do that and things will go well for her and, and she'll be able to come back and, and worship with us again soon. Father, we're thankful for those here this morning that haven't been able to be with us for a long time and, and, and we just pray that you'll continue to bless this congregation. Be with Chris this morning as he brings us another lesson. Father, we're thankful for him and his family. We're thankful for, for Dave and his family, and we pray that uh, you'll continue to bless and watch over them. Be with us, Father, as, uh, as we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all please stand as we sing our first hymn, number 732. 732, we praise thee, O God. <clears throat> we praise thee, O God, for the Son of thy for Jesus who died is now on the path. Hallelujah, thy glory, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah,
Next hymn this morning, number 870, I Am Happy Today, 870. After this hymn, Brother Chad Ward will have our scripture reading and prayer. I'm happy today, oh yes, I'm happy today, in Jesus Christ, I'm happy today, because he came to Lord. I'll be reading from Mark chapter 13, verses 28 through 30. Mark 13, 28 through 30. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its, when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Will you bow with me? Our most gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we humbly come before you, Father. We praise you for all that you are, for all that you mean to us and, and do for us and your, your daily presence, Father, in our lives. We know that all good things come from you. Father, we're thankful for the sunshine and the rain and, and the way that you see to, to replenish our, our earth, Father. And, and we, we're thankful for, for all of your creation and, and our ability to, to live in it. Father, we ask your blessing upon our service this morning that you will be with Chris. We're thankful for his his devotion to you, his devotion to us, and his time spent in preparation for this morning's lesson. We ask your blessing upon him. 
be with Chris and Kelly and their family, be with Dave and Mandy and their family. We're thankful for them. Pray that you would continue to be with Jerry and Clinton and Gary as they watch over and lead us, that you will bless them with good health and, and, and watch over them as, as they continue to watch over us. We ask your blessing upon Carol and Clinton, that you will be with each of them and help them to, to regain strength and, and bless them, Father. We pray that you would be with Eloise, continue to, to watch over her from her recent fall. Be with Dottie and as she recovers from her double knee surgery. And be with Jennifer and with John. And we pray that you would be with Martha as well. Father, watch over all the others who are in need of your blessing. Be with those who, who may not be mentioned or may not be on a, on a list this morning, Father. Father, most of all, we're thankful for the gift that you gave to us in Jesus. We're thankful that he lived on the earth as we live. We're thankful that he died for our sins. Father, help us to realize the gift that we've been given. Help us to, to lead and to live a life that, that is an example and a light uh, to those around us, Father, and that we'll uh, continue to walk in, in faith and and Father, in truth, watch over us throughout the rest of our service this morning. Forgive us, Father, when we fall short. Help us to learn from our mistakes. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Next hymn this morning, number 859. 859. He paid a debt. <clears throat> he paid a debt. He did not owe. I owed a debt. I could not pay. Thank you. 
We now come to the point in our worship service where we get to commune with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we prepare for that, I will be reading from the book of John, chapter 6. John chapter 6, 35 and 51. 35 reads, And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Who who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Jesus is the bread of life. We need to think about that. The bread that we partake of is symbolic of his body, which he uh, died to give us life through him. Jesus is the bread of life. As we partake of this uh, bread, which represents Jesus, let's go to God in prayer. Father in heaven, we come to you at this time, thanking you so much for all the many things that you do for us. Father, we're thankful for Jesus and his willingness to be a sacrifice for our behalf, Father. As we take this bread, I pray so that we do in a pleasing manner and according to your will. It's through your son's name that we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 26, verse 42. Again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Think about the cup that he had to drink. It was a dreadful cup. It contained mocking, scourging, spitting, nails, and abandonment. He drank it willingly. He didn't have to, but he chose to. The cup we drink of now spared us from all these things which we so much deserve. Let's go to God in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this cup that is before us, Father, for the blood that was shed on our behalf so we would not have to uh, suffer such a painful death, Father. We're so grateful and thankful for Jesus and the life that he lived. Please be with us as we partake of this through the vine which represents his blood. In your son's name we pray. Amen. That concludes the Lord's Supper. We now have the opportunity to give back a portion which God has so richly blessed us with. There's two containers in the back and middle. Uh, they're yellow. You can place your donation there uh, at the end of service if you so wish. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, thank you so much for all that you do for us, Father, for all the many earthly things that you provide us with, our homes, our family, our jobs, Father, that we can provide for our families. We're so thankful and grateful for all the many blessings that we have. We know that uh, you are the bestower of those blessings, and we're so grateful. I pray that we never take uh, those things for granted. I pray that you be with those that uh, don't have as much as what we do have, that we can be a blessing to them and give to them and help them in any need they may have, Father. Be with the elders as they uh, find the distribution of these funds. 
please be with us. Watch over us, protect us. Thank you for your love. It's your son's name we pray. Amen. Let's all please stand again. We'll sing hymn number 760. 760. Who will follow Jesus? It's at this time that the young children may go to the children's Bible hour. We'll sing the first three verses. Who will follow Jesus standing for the right, holding up his banner in the thickest light, listening for his orders, ready to obey? Who will follow Jesus serving him today? Who will follow Jesus? Who will bring him Invitation to him this morning, number 207, 207, Hark the Gentle Voice. This time, Brother Chris. Be turning to Mark chapter 13. That's where we're going to spend our time today. Well, it's been an incredibly beneficial study for me. I hope it's been a really great one for you as well. I've understood things about Scripture as we've walked through Mark that I didn't uh, grab a hold of until this study. And so I've really enjoyed it. And today, uh, I hope today will be a little bit of an enlightenment to you as well. Mark chapter 13. Have you ever been talking to someone and so misunderstood them that when they moved on, you didn't know how they got from A to B? Uh, Kelly and I call it train jumping. And so like... Uh, we'll be having a conversation, and then she'll jump way over here. And I thought, well, what, how, how do I connect these two thoughts? And, well, I've moved on, you know. I'm, I'm talking about something else now because her mind is magnificent. It works 
very, very quickly. Mine doesn't always work that fast. Today in Mark chapter 13, you're going to find Jesus doing something very much like that. Mark 13 is really misunderstood in our culture. Uh, I feel like most people, including us, uh, misunderstand what Jesus is trying to say here in Mark chapter 13. I wanted to open up with Jesus with the question that one of Jesus' disciples asked him in Mark chapter 13. It's in the first couple of verses. Let's read it. Mark 13, starting in verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? These, the, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That's the question that Jesus is answering in Mark chapter 13. Look at these incredible buildings, Jesus. Rabbi, aren't, isn't the temple just wonderful? And Jesus kind of looks at the temple and he says, Oh man, it's really pretty. But eventually there's coming a day pretty soon when this whole temple area and indeed the entire city is going to be demolished. That's not what they thought he was going to say. I am positive. <laughs> Remember jumping trains. This guy asked a question, and it wasn't even really a question, it's more of a statement. He just looked at the temple, and you see it on the screen behind me here. It is, and was, it was a marvelous, impressive wonder. In fact, it's one of the ancient wonders of the world. This temple was impressive. This is not Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple would have been even more impressive. This is what's called Herod's temple. Herod's temple. Solomon's temple is destroyed in 586 B.C., when the Babylonians come in and they wipe Jerusalem out. Uh, they're going to destroy the temple and it's just gone. It's gone forever. They're, they carry away the gold, all that stuff. Some of it comes back in 516 when they rebuild the temple. Uh, that's this temple. It was very small, kind of lackluster. In fact, uh, when they built it, the people of that day were, could remember. Some of the old, old men and old ladies could remember Solomon's temple, and they were so sad that this current temple didn't match up very well at all to the previous temple. But over the years, especially as uh, it neared Jesus' lifetime, a guy named Herod the Great came upon the scene, and he is going to enlarge and remodel this temple, and he, he's going to make it incredible. Uh, Herod the Great, if you look for him in history, You'll find him as one of the guys um, that had these marvelous building projects. Uh, he wanted his name to live on in posterity. And so he builds things like this, uh, like this temple. It is, it's incredible. Uh, some, some commentators from, that saw it you know, in the first century said that it was like a mountain of marble encased in gold. This thing, it would have glittered. Obviously, when you look at the city, just from this picture we've got before us this morning, when you look at the city, it is the first thing that captures your attention, doesn't it? And everything else just kind of pales in comparison. In fact, you may think you're looking at the city of Jerusalem when you see that, that massive monstrosity in the forefront of this picture. That's the temple. That's the temple that Jesus is walking around in. And if you look in those, the, the back part uh, of, the, of that structure... You see those columns, that's Solomon's portico. And several stories in Scripture happen in that area. But those columns, and the picture may be a little deceptive, those columns are huge. It's said that three large men 
could not wrap their arms. If they were touching fingertip to fingertip, they could just barely reach their arms around one of these columns. That's how massive these columns are. And so this guy, this disciple, we're not told who it is. Surely he has seen the temple before this point. But I guess it strikes him and most likely would have struck anyone who... And Jesus has been doing all of his teaching up until this point, the last chapter or two, in this area. He's been in the temple. Now he's in these courts. Uh, so the, the area, the massive areas uh, that look like basketball courts that are right in front of the, the columned area, that's where Jesus is when, when this happens. And they're walking around through the temple, and one of his disciples kind of gestures, I'm sure, towards the temple and the massive columns that look like they're going to stand for the next several thousand years. And he says, isn't this wonderful, Lord? Isn't uh, Jesus, just look at these, this temple. This is marvelous. In the Old Testament, the temple was incredibly special, right? Uh, in fact, the Psalms that are written directly after the temple is destroyed, Solomon's temple is destroyed uh, in 586. This, the, some of the psalmists write, Psalms, when they are thrown into exile in Babylonian captivity, uh, and they're always just pouring their hearts out to God in this incredible depression and sadness and over being overwhelmed because they've lost the temple. What made it so special? God's presence lived in the most holy place. You see the, the courts that we talked about earlier, the basketball-looking courts things there. Right in the middle of those two, you find... The holy place and the most holy place. It's the most holy place is where only the high priest could go in. He was the only guy, only person that was allowed to come into that, into the most holy place. And he could only do it one time a year on the Day of Atonement. When he went in, there sat the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the cherubim's wings reach over and they, they touch almost. And God's presence was said to live in between those two cherubim's wings. And so when you destroyed the temple, you destroyed, you took away God's house. And so it was, in the Old Testament, an incredibly special place. Uh, it was the heart of Judaism. We don't have anything to liken it to today. This destruction. And so this disciple says, this, this temple is just wonderful and marvelous. Jesus, look at this thing. This is beautiful. And Jesus says, it's not going to be beautiful long. Pretty soon there's, there's not going to be one stone on, on top of another. You can't even wrap your head around that, right? And the destruction that, that's coming is, is incredible. Listen to what he says here uh, in, in verse 3. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple... Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately. So he's got this massive horde of disciples that are following around the temple courts. And maybe this, we are not told who this disciple is that asked the question or made this statement. But the inner circle, along with Peter's brother Andrew, brings Jesus, Jesus to the side. And they've got a question for him. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? What's amazing about the disciples' question is they don't say, Jesus, I mean, the temple. Who's going to destroy the temple? This thing is, uh, it's amazing. No, I mean, you go back and look at this picture. Who's going to assault that? It is huge. 
It's going to stand forever. They don't say that. They take for granted that he's right. They've seen too much at this point. They know that what he says is coming true will happen. And so they just say, when's it going to happen? We want to be prepared for this because you don't, you don't want to be in the city when this happens. So tell us when this is going to happen. Now that question is what Jesus is going to answer throughout the rest of Mark chapter 13. When will Jerusalem be destroyed? If you make notes in your Bible, make this note. Mark chapter 13 is all about when will the temple be destroyed. It happens in AD 70. Spoiler alert. So verse 5, Jesus answered. He began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of war, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against, and kingdom, against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. So this is coming very soon. In fact, the, the, the passage that Chad read for you this morning is from the end of Mark chapter 13. All these things are going to happen during the apostles' lifetimes. So he's not, listen, he's not talking about the second coming in Mark chapter 13. Not in this first section. He's going to get to that, but not yet. <clears throat> All of Mark chapter 13, most of it at least, is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. There's going to come some stuff that has to happen, though, right? Because the disciples want to sign. When is Jerusalem going to be destroyed? When are, when are all these stones not going to be on top of each other? When's it going to, when's it going to be demolished? And so he tries to give them some signs. Well, first, there's going to be famines. There's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. In uh, 41 B.C., just a few years after Jesus is crucified, uh, a guy named Caligula takes over Rome. He's the emperor of Rome, and he is legitimately insane. Uh, he tries to set up a uh, statue of himself in the temple in Jerusalem, and the Jews will not have it. Now, that is, uh, it's not tantamount to idolatry. It is idolatry. And if they've learned anything from the exile, it's that we don't worship statues. And so they threw a huge fit. There were protests all over the city. They just were not going to allow this to happen. And so the rumors were that Caligula was going to come in and he was going to punish the Jews uh, for, for their resistance. That's just one of the, the rumors of the wars that's happening during the first century. There's going to be famines. In fact, there are three or four massive famines that happen during about a 10 to 15 year time span. There's earthquakes that happen. If you remember, Pompeii was destroyed by an earthquake that happened in the first century, about 67 A.D., I think. Um, but there's other ones. So when Jesus says, you start seeing these things happen, uh, the time's getting close. Not for the second coming, for the end of Jerusalem, for the, the, for the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, why is he talking about the destruction of Jerusalem? Well, he's kind of been talking about that for a couple of chapters now. Remember when he talked uh, about the parable of the tenant farmers? And he compares these, these tenant farmers who 
um, refuse to give the master his due and they kill every servant he sends and then eventually they, he sends his son, they kill the son thinking, oh, the vineyard will be ours now. We can do what we want to. The kingdom's ours. Jesus says, no, you've forgotten that the master of the vineyard is going to come in and he's going to punish you because of the way you've acted. The Jews, the Jewish leadership got that he was talking about them. He's still talking about them. The Jewish way of life, the Judaism as a, as a religion, will not survive the first century. It will be destroyed in the, in the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And all of that's coming. And the disciples are asking, well, when's it going to happen? Right? When's it going to happen? Well, some of these things are going to have to happen first. Um, skip down a couple of verses. Diverse, diverse, <laughs> to verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days, that's important, underline every time you see those days. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. So what's going to happen before the destruction of Jerusalem? That's what he's talking about here in chapter 14. There's going to be a destruction of Jerusalem, this abomination of desolation. We're going to get to that in just a second. I want to deal with something that happens uh, up before verse 14, just for a second though. Look at, listen, listen to what he says in verse 9. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my name's sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. So he talks about when is this stuff going to happen? When's the temple going to be destroyed? Well, there's going to be some famines. There's going to be some wars. There's going to be rumors of wars. There's going to be a lot of bad things that happen. But then you're going to be beaten in synagogues. Who rules the synagogues? Who's going to be doing the beating of the apostles in the synagogues? It's the Jews, right? He's waiting until their sin has reached the brim of the cup. Do you remember in the Old Testament? I know I'm jumping around a lot today. Hang with me. Do you remember in the Old Testament when God is promising Israel Canaan? He's, he's not telling them they're going to go into it just yet because the Canaanites' sin hasn't reached the brim of the cup yet. It hasn't reached, it's, they haven't sinned all the way yet. That's what he's waiting for with the Jews. They've not, they've refused to submit to Jesus. They've killed every prophet that have come trying to bring them back to God. They won't listen to John the Baptist. In fact, they had him killed. They won't listen to Jesus. In fact, they're going to have him killed. And then they're going to kill all of his apostles who try to do the exact same thing that the prophets and Jesus and John the Baptist did. They're going to kill all of them. And so Jesus, God is just waiting until their sin is all the way up to the brim of the cup. Remember, he's long-suffering. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't want to condemn. He doesn't want to judge. 
That's not his heart. His heart is that everyone come and be saved. You ever want to see the Father's heart? He wants you to come to him so that you can stay away from the condemnation that's coming because it will be fierce and it will be full and it will be forever, right? He doesn't want that for anyone. And so even the Jews who have blasted him time and time again, refused him time and time again, and refused to submit over and over and over again, he's waiting, just hoping that one more will come to repentance so that they can avoid the condemnation that's coming. And he keeps putting it off, just waiting for their sin to reach the brim of the cup until he can't wait not even one more second, like at the flood. Every thought that they had was evil. He's waiting for that point with the Jews. And in AD 70, he's finally reached it. By that point, they've killed most of the the apostles, the messengers that Jesus had sent. They killed Jesus. They killed John the Baptist. They've killed all the prophets. And by that point, in AD 70, they've even killed most of the apostles. Peter and Paul are certainly dead by then. All the rest of them that are still remaining have fled for their lives across the nation. and They're spending their lives proclaiming the gospel in other places outside of Jerusalem because Jerusalem is a canker sore on the earth now. They just refuse to submit. This Jewish persecution of Christians has to come before Jerusalem's destroyed. That's what he's saying. You're going to be beaten in synagogues. Um, so this Jewish persecution of Christians is coming before the destruction of Jerusalem. On the screen behind me, you see the stoning of Stephen. There's, there's uh, Saul, who will one day become Paul, uh, with the coats of the guys that are stoning Stephen laid at his feet. All this is happening before the destruction of Jerusalem. Saul was the tip of the spear in this respect of the Jewish people persecuting the Christians. But in reality, it was, it was very widespread. In fact, the letter of Hebrews is written to Christians from Jewish descent because some of them are edging their way back into Judaism. Why? Why would you do that? That's insanity, right? You give up the prize of heaven for Judaism? That's insane. Why would they do that? Well, it's a whole lot easier to live here as a Jew with Jewish neighbors and Jewish family and Jewish friends than it is to live as a Jewish Christian because all your Jewish friends and your Jewish neighbors and your Jewish family hate you and they're willing to trip you up and hurt you at any and every opportunity. And so it's a lot easier to go back into Judaism to maintain those relationships and so they don't hurt you anymore. It's easier to make those compromises, right? And so the book of Hebrews is all about don't make those compromises, You stay faithful to Christ and don't worry about what happens to you here. That's a hard message to hear, isn't it? That's what he tells tells the Hebrew Christians and that's what he tells us too. All that to say, this Jewish uh, persecution of Christians had to come before the end of Jerusalem. He's waiting for their sin to reach the brim of the cup. And when it does, when maybe metaphorically speaking, every thought of theirs was evil toward the Christians... He's going to take them out. He's going to destroy Jerusalem. And that's what you see happening here in verse 14 with this abomination of desolation. Now, excuse me. When they heard abomination of desolation, their minds go 
very quickly right back to Daniel. Because Daniel talks about the abomination of desolation. And when he does so, <coughs> sorry, he's talking about this guy named Antichus Epiphanes IV. We talked a little bit about him in our Bible class this morning. Um, he is the ruler over this area. And he is not a nice person. He's not moral. And he doesn't care anything about uh, Jewish way, ways of life or Judaism as a whole. And he just wants people to do what I tell you to do. So when they hear abomination of desolation, their first thought is of an invading force. It's not Antichus Epiphanes because he's been dead for 300 years. So who could it be? Well, it's the current invading force that is in charge of Jerusalem. Just like Antichus Epiphanes was in charge of Jerusalem 300 years earlier, and Daniel is going to point at him 600 years before that and say, that's the abomination of desolation. Now when Jesus says it, their minds immediately go back to the invading force that takes over Jerusalem in the first century, which was Rome, right? So when he says abomination of desolation, their minds immediately start thinking of there's, going to, there's coming a Roman or maybe Romans who are going to do something bad to Jerusalem, just like Antichus Epiphanes did. And when that happens, you don't mess around. Look at what he says in verse 15. If you're on top of the house, don't go down jump off and run. If you're in the field, don't go back to your house. You just start running uh, from the field. It's going to be tough. If you're, uh, don't, don't turn around and get your cloak. Uh, it's going to be a very hard thing. Pray that it doesn't happen in winter. Uh, and this is going to be a tribulation unlike anything that's ever been seen before. He's talking about what happens in AD 70 when the Romans come in and they wipe Jerusalem off the map. It's going to be more full this time, this destruction will be more full than even what happened in 586 B.C. You know why? It's very simple. In 586 B.C., the temple's destroyed. Jerusalem is destroyed. The people are carted off into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. Do you know what happens after the 70 years, though? They come back. God welcomes them back with open arms. And what happens? They rebuild the temple. What else happens? Well, his presence lives again inside the temple in Jerusalem. He starts blessing them. When they pray, he listens. When they sacrifice, he forgives. In AD 70, when Jerusalem is judged again, when Jerusalem is destroyed again, he doesn't listen to their prayers. When they sacrifice, he doesn't forgive. They are no longer his people. They're cut off. It's complete. It's final. He's not listening to them anymore. That's why Jesus says that this is unlike any, um, any tribulation before. Since the beginning of the creation that God created all the way up until now in verse 19. It's going to be unlike anything else because can you imagine what would happen if God cuts you off? If you cease to be His we, we can't grasp that just yet, can we? But that's one of the things that makes hell, hell. It's because God's not there. He's removed his presence from that place. He's removed his presence from Jerusalem. I mean, can we grab a hold of just for a second what it would be like to pray to God and, and not him not listen? To plead for forgiveness and him not give it? 
Because right now, we can plead for forgiveness. And He, with open arms, welcomes us back. Right? On that day, in AD 70, He didn't. They cried out for mercy, and there wasn't any. That day's coming for us, too. So we need to make sure that we are submitting to Him. That's their problem. All throughout Mark, they refuse to submit. They refuse to give their lives over. We have to make sure that before this day comes, and we don't even know when when it's coming, that our lives are given over to Him, fully submitted to Him. Listen to what he says in verse 24. But in those days, there's that word again, those days. He's talking about the exact, exact same time period right now in this verse that he was talking about all throughout Mark chapter 13. Every time you see those days in Mark chapter 13, underline it, circle it, because he's talking about the exact same time period. It's happening in the first century. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. He's trying to get you to see how awful this destruction will be. And he's using what's called apocalyptic literature. He's pulling from several passages in the Old Testament that have these kinds of uh, of thoughts where the sun doesn't shine, the moon doesn't even shine, stars are falling from heaven, right? And so this day will be awful. And for us, what we need, this is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. They're being judged, and he called it years earlier, right? And right now he's saying, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. For us, the day that's coming is Judgment Day. We need to make sure that we're prepared for that day. Right now he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Listen to what he says in verse 26. He's still talking about the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in A.D. 70. Everybody with me? Because you're not going to be with me in just a second. (laughs) When we read this verse, you're not going to be with me. Hang in there. Verse 26. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory... And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. You're not with me anymore, are you? Now you're thinking, oh, this is the second coming. It's not the second coming. Go back and look in Daniel. Turn your Bible back over to Daniel. Let's see. Daniel chapter 7. Hold your finger in Mark. We're coming back. Daniel chapter 7. When... We hear, Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. We hear about angels from the four winds of the earth coming. We automatically think of Judgment Day, right? When Jesus comes back. That's the first thought that that comes into our heads. That is not, and it would not have been the first thoughts that came into the disciples' heads because Paul hasn't written that yet. (laughs) When Jesus says this, Paul has not written 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where he talks about the Son of Man coming in glory. They would not have thought second coming. What would they have thought of? Well, they would have thought the passage that Jesus is quoting here. It's Daniel chapter 9. Sorry, Daniel chapter 7. 
Hold on. Give me a second. So Daniel 7 is all about these, these, this vision of the four beasts. He's talking about uh, giving over the kingdom uh, to, to Christ. Uh, he, it's a predictive prophecy, right? Look in verse 13. <coughs> Hold on, I'm trying to find it. All right, Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Look back up in verse 13. He came with what? Clouds of heaven. There came one like the Son of Man. That's what Jesus is quoting from here in Mark chapter 13. It's not the second coming. He would have, uh, all the disciples were thinking of Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7 is all about the kingdom being given over to Jesus. This new thing that God is doing that no one could have possibly comprehended. This would not, the church would not have entered any Jewish mindset from Adam all the way till Malachi. They could not have even passed that. Disciples couldn't grab a hold of that until it actually happened on the day of Pentecost. And then they're like, whoa, God is doing something incredibly new here. That's what Daniel's prophesying in Daniel chapter 7. And that's what Jesus is talking about here in Mark chapter 13 in verse 26. When the kingdom is given over to Jesus. When it is clear to the world that Judaism is no longer God's way of doing things. It's not his way of saving people. Now he's brought in this new way, right? He's still talking about... um, about the uh, destruction of Jerusalem. This is why they're going to be destroyed, because they did not submit. The church will submit. It's what we do. We follow him without question, without reservation. So, back in Mark chapter 13, verse 28. When will the temple be destroyed? He's still answering that question. From the fig tree, learn this lesson. Remember the fig tree? Back in Mark chapter 11, remember the fig tree. Learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its, put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Who's near? The Roman, the abomination of desolation that's coming in to destroy Jerusalem. We know his name now. His name was Titus. <laughs> I didn't name my Titus after him. He just destroyed a lot of stuff, though. Um, so this Titus... Uh, will become one day after this emperor Caesar. He'll become the ruler over Rome. He's not there yet. Now he's just the general. And he is coming to the gates of Jerusalem. It took them four years to get there. In AD 66, the Jews start uprising. And there's all this tension between them and the Romans. Uh, and so and it doesn't actually happen until AD 70. But when you see those armies moving towards Jerusalem, you need to get out of Dodge. Verse 30, he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all 
these things. There's that word again, these things. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Until all these things take place, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. He's saying this will happen. I know these buildings look marvelous. I know they look like they're going to stand for a thousand years or a million years, but they're not. Judgment's coming. It may look unlikely, but judgment is coming. All right, let's get into the part you came for today. (laughs) Verse 32. Mark chapter 13, verse 32. Finally, he's talking about the second coming. (laughs) Now he's talking about the second coming. All of Mark 13 up until this point has been the destruction of Jerusalem. Now he's talking about the second coming. But concerning that day, right? Underline that day because he's switching topics. Everything else has been those days, these days. He's not talking about that anymore. He switched topics. But in that day, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son of Man, but only the Father. You know another way you can tell that he is switched topics? Because Jesus has just given you some signs of when this is going to happen. The destruction of Jerusalem. He knows when that's going to happen. Everybody with me? He knows when that's going to happen. He's given you several signs so that you can be aware that it's going to happen. So that Christians aren't there. And in fact, this is a cool little historical tidbit. History tells us that not a single Christian died in the siege of Jerusalem. Lots of Jews died, but all of, all of God's people remembered his words. And they all left as soon as they saw this happening. As soon as they saw the armies coming. But this day, even Jesus doesn't know. I don't know if he knows now or not. After, after his resurrection, I don't, I don't know if he knows now. But in the first century, he didn't know. Uh, only the Father knew. And so your job, verse 33, is to be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. Jesus does know. You surely don't know. I don't know. Verse 34, he says, It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. You're the doorkeeper. I'm the doorkeeper. Verse 35, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. The big theme in this section is watch. Watch, stay awake, as in stay faithful until he comes. No matter what happens, no matter what life throws at you, no matter what culture throws at you, no matter what disease throws at you, you stay faithful, you stay awake. The doorkeeper, go back and look at it, has one job, right? You ever... Had somebody tell you that you had one job. The doorkeeper has one job. His only job is to stay awake. That's our job. Stay awake. Stay faithful until he comes back. That's our sole job as disciples is to watch. We busy ourselves with other jobs. All these things do is distract us, right? Our job is to stay awake. Some of us have fallen asleep. Some of us have not been paying attention like we ought to. Some of us have made compromises that we shouldn't have made. Maybe during COVID, maybe even before COVID, have made compromises to our faith and to our lives that are not an honor to Him. They're not submission without question and without reservation. That's what He demands this morning. Are you willing to submit without question without reservation. If you are, He can save you. If you're not, He can't. 
There's no middle ground. If you're willing to submit, you do so through baptism. He washes away your sins and you become a brand new creation. And when he looks at you, he doesn't see you. This is the amazing truth of the gospel. When he looks at you after baptism, he doesn't see you. He doesn't see your sins and your mistakes and all the the fallacy that is me. He doesn't see us. He sees Jesus, the perfect sacrifice for sins, the atonement for our sins. That's what he sees uh, in us after our baptism. And so if you haven't been baptized this morning, you need to get inside of Christ. So that when he looks at you, he doesn't see you. He doesn't see your sins. He doesn't see your mistakes. He sees his son. Maybe you have already made that decision this morning. And you just need the prayers of this congregation to stay awake, to stay faithful, to keep plugging away. We want to be helpful to you in any way we can. If you want to come this morning, why don't you come as we stand and sing. The gentle voice of Jesus falleth tenderly upon your ear. Sweet hymns cry above him. I'd like to thank Chris for another wonderful lesson. We've only got one additional announcement that Gary went over all of them. Uh, Mother's having some uh, gout problems. Can't walk right now, so that's why she's not here this morning. Other than that, if there's any other announcements... We'd like to invite you back this evening at 6 o'clock. Would you stand for the closing song and closing prayer, please?
<clears throat> Next hymn, 653, The Way of the Cross. Way of the Cross. Sing the first two verses, and then Brother Jim Haney will have her, have her prayer. I must needs go home by the way of the cross. There's no other way but this. I shall dare Our Father, which art in heaven, we thank you again that you have given us this privilege to assemble and to worship you. Father, we pray that our worship service has been acceptable unto thee. Father, we thank you so much for every blessing you've given us. Father, we thank you for the country in which we live. Father, we just pray that you will be with our leaders and just help them to make the right decisions for this country and that we can always have our freedoms to be able to worship you. Father, we pray that you'll bless each and every one here. Bless us as parents, as grandparents. We just pray that we'll be the example that we need to be for our children, our grandchildren. We pray that you'll direct their lives, that each and every one of them, Father, will obey your word and live faithful to you. For we know that the future of the church lies in their hands and lies in our teachings to them. We pray, Father, that you'll just give us strength, be with our sick and each and every one of those that are on our prayer list, those who have been mentioned, give them strength, give them healing, just give them comfort. God, and bless us each day and watch over us and then give us a home in heaven with you. For we pray in Christ's name and amen. <clears throat> 